Thank you, Grace, for the prayer. Um, also, that was an awesome time of worship. I, I rarely cry, but I find myself tearing up a little bit. So that was a very blessed time. Uh, scripture reading for today is Acts chapter 18, verse 18 through 28. Verse 18 through 20, and this is the word of the Lord. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chencria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he had finished, when he, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Uh, thank you, Grace, for the prayer. Uh, that was wonderful. Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us so well this morning. Uh, Charlie was choking up a little bit, so, but I, I wasn't going to cry at all. I, just, I don't I think, I think, uh, so dynamic was such that um, it triggered some tears in Andrew, but but I, I saw it and I was I was deeply moved. Also, um, I love it when God's people uh, they're swept up in the worship and just uh, you know pouring their hearts out to Him. So grateful for our time already. Wanted to welcome uh, one sister who's visiting us for the first time, a friend of Nicole Chung's. Her name is Jenny Kim, and she is sitting in the back over. Jenny, raise your hand for us. Let's give her a warm welcome. All right. Okay, and let's see. Um, it looks like, I feel like the, is this good? It looks like the uh, only uh, cold weather days that are left are today and tomorrow, right? The rest of the month is expected to be pretty warm, so we're looking at an early spring this year, which should be good for all of us, since warmer weather usually means more human interaction, right? And the Lord knows that we need more of that in our lives, so looking forward to just, uh, the warmer weather that's uh, soon to come. Okay, well, last week we uh, saw how God ministered to the Apostle Paul in Corinth, who at the time was a as we said, a discouraged and a weary traveler, and he was in the middle of his second missionary journey, and so God 
He encouraged Paul through Priscilla and Aquila's timely friendship and hospitality. Uh, God also provided Paul, provided for Paul through the financial generosity of the churches all throughout Macedonia, we learned. And last but not least, God encouraged Paul by speaking to him in a vision, saying, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And as a result of that promise and assurance from God, Paul was able to stay in Corinth for another 18 months without having to fear for his life. And in today's passage, you'll notice that Luke, who is the author of Acts, he in a way presses the fast forward button and he chooses to breeze through the remaining time Paul had on his second missionary journey and even through the early portion of Paul's third trip. And it's a bit strange because up to this point you had you know, Luke walking through all the details of the first journey and then the second journey, but then all of a sudden, fast forward, he kind of goes rapidly through the end of the second and then through the third. And, and so, well, I would say a good way to remember uh, when this sort of transition happens is by knowing that as Paul is about to conclude his second missionary journey, he gets a haircut. Okay, and I know that sounds funny, but I only mention it because Luke did choose to include that detail in this story. So obviously Luke believed that it was significant enough to mention, and I'll uh, explain why that is. And so the outline for today, I don't expect it to be a long message. Part one, for the first time ever in my ministry life, uh, I'm titling part one as Paul's haircut, right? The, the haircut. <laughs> I never preached on this passage ever. The haircut. I learned a lot, actually, going through this uh, particular portion of Scripture. Part two, the husband and wife team of Priscilla and Aquila, as well as the gifted Apollos is introduced. So I'll cover these characters, and then I'll end with some practical considerations. Um, because it's always good to end the message with some application, right? You know, all of you appreciate that. So part one, the haircut, right? The haircut. If you read through the book of Acts, uh, you'll be able to easily notice when Paul's first and second missionary journeys begin but for whatever reason, Luke does not give us a clear marker for when the second missionary journey ends and when the third journey begins. And let me just direct you to the portion where all of this is sort of blurred together, okay? It's Acts chapter 18, verse 22 and 23, right? That rapid transition happens all in those two verses. Verse 22, when Paul had landed at Caesarea, he went up meaning he went up to Jerusalem, right, the, the mother church, right, where it all began, where there's this gospel explosion. So he went up to Jerusalem, and he greeted the church. And then it says he went down to Antioch, which was the missionary church. Was it, that was a sending church, remember? That was the, the place where he, he began this journey. And the reason why the Bible says that he went down to Antioch, even though Antioch is north of Jerusalem, is because... You know, Jerusalem was on this, in this mountainous region. Antioch was in the lower, lower region. That's how uh, these biblical authors thought, you know, up and down, okay? Um, so a little bit confusing, but that's, that's how it is. And verse 23, after spending some time there in Antioch, 
he departed, meaning he began his third journey and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia. So he kind of goes that, that similar route again. He circles around the Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, and he eventually comes back to Ephesus, okay, where they are now. And part of the reason why Luke uh, does not give a whole lot of detail of Paul's, the ending of Paul's second trip and, and beginning of the third trip, uh, it might be because Luke actually wasn't on the third trip. Right? He wasn't part of this trip, and so maybe he just didn't have all the details to, to give an accurate account. That, that, that could be one reason. You know? But most scholars believe that the main reason why Luke omits much of the details from Paul's third journey is because Luke believed that it was more important to focus on two major cities, right? The, the, the cities where Paul stayed the longest, right? He stayed in Corinth for about two years, and so that was sufficiently covered. And then the, the next focus is Ephesus, the place he ministered for three years, even longer than Corinth. And so Luke's focus is now, it's just solely on to Ephesus. And so this is, it's, it's, it might be a bit weird if you're kind of reading through Acts and you notice this sort of all of a sudden uh, rapid pace. But another thing Luke does that's somewhat surprising is that in verse 18, he includes, as I said, the fact that Paul got his hair cut Verse 18 says, at Cancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. You know, it's like, what in the world? Why would, why would Luke include this detail? I mean, you're supposed to wonder. And the short answer is because this was no ordinary haircut, okay? Paul was likely fulfilling some form of a Nazarite vow that was occasionally practiced by the Jews, right? Nazarite means literally one who is consecrated, right? one, one who is set apart. And you can read about the details of what this Nazarite vow was in Numbers chapter 6. Let me just read a few verses from that chapter, okay? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman, so it's not, it wasn't just for men, women could do this too, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, or to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine, in other words, no drinking of alcohol, not even wine, that was the common drink of the day, and no razor shall touch his head, or her head, right? But you can't cut your head, and, you know, this Nazarite vow, uh, was actually a voluntary vow. So no one was like forcing you to do it. It was purely voluntary. And it was meant to be a clear expression of one's dedication to the Lord over a set period of time. And you set the time for yourself. Right? You want to make it a week or two weeks, a month. It could be six months. That was purely voluntary. Okay? But what made this vow unique was that it was a public vow since there was no way of hiding the fact that you were growing your hair out, right? I mean, it would have been more noticeable, obviously, if you were a man. I mean, imagine if I made such a vow, right? All of you would immediately notice and ask, Pastor Paul, what is going on? Are you okay? <laughs> Something you have to share with us? And so by making a Nazarite vow, you were at the same time making a public statement, declaring to the world, I don't care how funny I look. 
And I, I, I would look very funny if I grew up my hair. Right? I serve the Lord Yahweh, and I do not care if you know that I do. That would be the declaration. And given how God had encouraged Paul while he was in Corinth by promising to him that no one was going to harm him so he could focus on ministry worry-free for a prolonged period of time, many believe that Paul would have made this Nazarite vow in Corinth as an expression of his thanksgiving to God for delivering him from persecution and for giving him the time to minister worry-free. And now that his ministry in Corinth was over, he thought it was time to get his hair cut and end this special period of consecration before the Lord. Okay? I mean, that would seem to be the most natural understanding of how, how this uh, unfolded. Now, I was always aware that Samson and even John the Baptist had made the Nazarite vow, but I have to admit that I did not realize the Apostle Paul also had made this vow. It was my ignorance there. And normally, you know, I really don't like it when men grow out their hair. Um, I picked on Hehu earlier during 9 o'clock. Because I, I looked at him this morning. I was like, man, he's growing out his hair. Should I call upon him? And so I chose. <laughs> he looks like a Jewish or, a, let, me, let me put it. He looks like a Korean Jew, doesn't he? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of hair down here. And normally, I, I just don't like it when men grow out their hair uh, because I believe that men ought to look like men. And in growing out your hair here is different from growing it like here, you know what I'm saying? You start looking like a non-male, <laughs> a female, right? Um, and I think it's important to make, you know, make that distinction clear, especially in this day and age. But I would, of course, have no problem at all if any of you you know, male or female, wanted to make a Nazarite vow for a season and dedicate yourself before the Lord in humble service to him. I would have no problem with that. I mean, there's nothing actually wrong with practicing the Nazarite vow even today as long as you do it voluntarily and as long as you don't think of it as a way to earn God's favor through it. I mean, you cannot be thinking if I do this for God, of course he will do this for me, right, tit for tat. You cannot think of it as some kind of business transaction because that would go against the principle of grace that we treasure. So if you're going to grow out your hair, don't just do it as a way to make a fashion statement, but rather consider consecrating yourself to the Lord in response to his grace for you. And you make a Nazarite vow as a way to publicly declare that you are the Lord's servant, no matter the consequences. I can see some of you thinking that I should lead by example. <laughs> but do you really want to see me with you? I don't think so. <laughs> but if it seems like the right thing to do, maybe I'll, I'll do it one day. Part two, the husband and wife team of Priscilla and Aquila and the gifted of Paul. Let me introduce these characters to you. Um, so after spending almost two years with the Apostle Paul, receiving the best kind of discipleship they could have possibly received, Priscilla and Aquila leave Corinth and they travel with Paul to Ephesus. And 
They're asking Paul, Paul, can you stay with us longer? But Paul wants to report back to Antioch, the church that sent him, in order to conclude his second missionary journey. And so Paul tells Priscilla and Aquila that uh, they're to stay, that they, they should stay in Ephesus. And he says, I will return to you if God wills. And then he leaves Ephesus. And so as Paul wraps up this second journey and, and begins his third journey, he sort of disappears from the scene temporarily. And Luke's focus shifts to the husband and wife team of Priscilla and Aquila, as well as introducing this new character, Apollos. And let me share a few details uh, about uh, Priscilla and Aquila that I, I think you'll, you'll find very helpful, okay? Something that I learned as well. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times together in Scripture. Okay, I believe it's three times in the book of Acts and three times in other portions. But four of those times, Priscilla is mentioned first. And although, you know, we may be used to seeing the wife's name come before the husband's name in our, our time, I mean, it's, it's rather common, actually, every time I you know, look at a wedding invitation, 90% of the time, for whatever reason, the wife's name is first. And I'm always saying, is this like a trend or is this intentional? I always wonder, to be honest, right? Why does the wife's name come first? That's just a question I had. But in this case, four times, Priscilla, her name comes first. And I tell you, this was not common. I mean, it was actually never common to place the wife's name first, um, not only in Israel's history, but in much of human history. Right? I mean, sometimes the wife's name was never even mentioned. It was just the male representing the house. And so the fact that Priscilla's name is mentioned four out of six times first has naturally raised some questions as to why that is. And we can only speculate as to the exact reason why, since we're not given you know, the reason by these biblical writers, but many believe, and I, I tend to agree, I, I mean, I'm of course, I'm guessing, but I think it's an educated guess. It's because Priscilla was the more outspoken one of the two. And I can't say that with 100% certainty, but um, I will say that I guess I, I'm offering this as sort of a, a caution, okay? Even if that was the case, even, even if Priscilla was the more outspoken one, that does not mean that Priscilla was this dominant, unsubmissive figure who assumed the leadership role over her husband. Right? You cannot take it that way. Uh, I'm sure you personally know such women, but it, it, I, I believe with all my heart, I've, I've seen examples of this, uh, where the wife is more vocal and she is more spiritually articulate and she is like more gifted in some ways. And as a result, she is more well-known by others. While at the same time, she is still respectful and submissive to her husband. One think very strong example that comes to mind, at least for my generation, you may not know her, but there was a woman named Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim Elliot, 
Okay, Jim Elliot, he was martyred. And then so Elizabeth Elliot married two more times because her second husband also died prematurely. Um, but even though she was more well-known than her husband's, she was always fully committed to following the leadership of her husband's. And she always taught the importance of wives submitting to their husbands, right? Whether it's through her writings or through her speaking. Now, let me, uh, I think, for the younger generation, you may be more familiar with names like Nancy Guthrie. That's another good example, I think, right? Many of our members have benefited from her teachings, right? Her, her audience is mainly women. Uh, but she and her husband, let me ask you this. Do you know what her husband's name is? You don't, right? No one, no one knows. I don't even know. <laughs> I think her husband just chooses to remain anonymous for the most part, right? You never, you never really see the husband's name. But she and her husband, they actually intentionally host these retreats for couples who have faced the death of a child as part of their effort to work together as husband and wife, right? Another uh, character that uh, you should be familiar with by now because it's been, it's been mentioned like pretty much every week for the past uh, couple months is Ruth Chow, I think it's Simmons or Simons, one of those. It's spelled with one M. Uh, I think Miriam's favorite right now, right? Uh, Ruth Chow Simmons or Simons. She, she is married with six boys. Uh, however, and, and no one knows the husband's name. <laughs> however... She is not some strong feminist type who was against following her husband's lead. Okay, and, you know, if it comes out that any of these women are not how I'm describing them to be, then I, I would actually be against sending our women to the Gospel Coalition and Women's Conference because these, these two women are, you know, going to be the main teachers, right? Um, but as far as I know, right, they're actually very healthy examples for, for women, okay, so that I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable sending our women to, to learn from them. And, and sisters, maybe you can relate to, to all this, right? Maybe um, you share the same, like, outspoken posture to life and to faith, but uh, I just want to caution you, right? That does not mean that God is calling you to lead your husband, okay, or be in a position where you're leading the church. Right? Ephesians 5, no matter how gifted you are, okay, no matter how marvelous you are in your speech, uh, no matter how great a teacher you are, Ephesians 5 still applies to all of us. Now let me also take a moment to introduce to you a new character in the story, right? the gifted Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria, Alexandria was a, the center of learning, much like the city of Athens. And Apollos was a well-educated man who was also incredibly gifted in speech. The, um, our passage introduces us to him in this way. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And it says, interestingly, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, we don't know exactly uh, how Apollos came to know the Lord. We're not given his testimony here. But 
Since Alexandria attracted a lot of intellectuals from diverse backgrounds, we could assume that Apollos became exposed to the teachings of Christ at some point during his studies. I mean, he read a lot, he knew a lot, he was able to, you know, digest a lot of material. That's what smart people do, okay? Uh, But our passage today tells us that though he spoke accurately about the things he didn't know about Jesus. It says that he only knew the baptism of John. That, that, that's a head-scratcher for many people, because uh, we don't know exactly what that means. But, you know, maybe, maybe he was rightly calling people to repent of their sins. Right? That was the spirit of John's baptism, right? John the, uh, John the Baptist, he called people to repent of their sins as he was preparing the way of the Lord. So maybe, maybe his... Emphasis was on repentance, but he, he failed to assure the people that those who place their faith in Christ are completely washed by the blood of Jesus and united to him forever, which would have been more of the baptism that Jesus preached. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that could be a, a possibility, right? That's likely, but no one knows for sure. But it does say that as Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak, they could tell that something was missing. Not that he was giving inaccurate information, not that he was saying anything wrong, but there was this gap in his understanding. Something was missing. It wasn't a complete message. And so they, they chose to take him aside, and it says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And the result was verse 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was, in fact, Jesus. And so because of Priscilla and Aquila's conversation, he was able to actually have more confidence, and he was even more effective in his ministry. Now, this brief interaction between this married couple and Apollos may not seem like a big deal to all of you, but there are a couple things that are worth noting from this Encounter, okay? Remember that Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers by trade. That means they were not part of the educated elite class, okay? They were not Ivy League material, right? In today's terms, they were blue-collar workers. They were far less educated and far less skilled in their speech compared to Apollos. Uh, You need to realize there was such a gap here. I mean, Apollos was so gifted in his oratory abilities that the church later became divided over him, right? Not because Apollos intentionally tried to divide the church, but because that's what people normally do. Like, people normally gravitate toward those who are especially gifted and charismatic, right? We see it even today. Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 3, calling out this kind of division for when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And Paul recognizes this tension and division. He calls it out. And so Apollos, he wasn't just a better than average speaker, okay? He was an exceptionally gifted speaker. And so the gap between Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila were like really, really huge. And yet, you had these two blue-collar workers in Priscilla and Aquila who had the courage to approach Apollos. I mean, this would be like one of us 
daring to approach, I was having a hard time finding a, a good example, actually, because there's so much controversy these days over <laughs> who's a respectable preacher. But let me just choose a safe, safe option, all right? Safe choice. Billy Graham, <laughs> the late Billy, he, he passed away. Uh, but let's say Billy Graham at his prime, right? And it, it would be like one of us daring to approach Billy Graham, offering him instruction <laughs> in regards to you know, how, to, how to speak more accurately about the gospel. If you like John Piper, you can kind of plug John Piper's name. If you like Tim Keller, it's, you know, whatever. Whatever you, whoever you revere, okay? Most people would be intimidated to do so, but not, not, Aquil, uh, not Priscilla and Aquila because, because they were trained well by the Apostle Paul himself, and their confidence was not in themselves, but their confidence was in the Lord, and they did not ultimately care about what Apollos thought of them or whether, you know, Apollos would be offended by their remarks. In other words, they did not fear man, they feared God. Right? They cared about God's honor above all else, so they boldly approached him and, and talked to him. Right? I think that's the only way you can, you can do this well. I mean, if, if you're not always consumed about, okay, what is the other person going to think of me? What will others think of me, you know? But what's equally surprising is that Apollos was humble enough, and this may be even more surprising, right? He was humble enough to receive their instruction and become an even greater asset to the church's early witness. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I'm sure all of you struggle. I mean, I, I confess I struggle with this too. Right? I struggle when, when someone who is less educated, you know, less knowledgeable of ministry dares to approach me <laughs> and give me advice on ministry. It's like, who are you? <laughs> Why should I listen to you sort of mentality, you know? But it, it takes great humility, right, to receive instruction from someone who is less educated, less gifted than you. But to be able to do so, I believe, is a clear sign of spiritual maturity. It's a clear sign of humility. I catch my older kids sometimes telling the younger kids, you don't tell me what to do. You know why they say that? It's because how dare you approach me when you're younger than me, Right? <laughs> I admit that sometimes our four-year-old Joshua thinks he's everyone's boss, including, you know, me. Uh, it, it does get kind of annoying, but there are times when he speaks irrefutable truth, like, Nuna, mommy said to finish your homework before you play. Right? How can you refute that, right? <laughs> the follow-up, it cannot be, you don't tell me what to do, right? It should be like, okay, that's right, mommy said that, so I should, no matter, you know, where that comes, well, you know, what, which mouth that comes out of. What I'm saying is that if you're willing to be, um, if you're willing to listen to someone who is less gifted than you and less smarter, that is a strong evidence of genuine humility. And so this story tells us that Apollos was not only a gifted speaker, but he was also a man of good character. That's what we learned from him. And this is really a good test of character, right? Are you someone, ask yourselves, examine your hearts, are you someone who only listens to the educated elites in our society 
or the educated elite class in the church even? Or are you also open to hearing from the Priscilla's and Aquila's of our day, essentially the less educated, the blue-collar, the simple, simple blue-collar workers of our day? Are you willing to learn from them as well? Are you, learn, are you willing to hear them out? Right? Let me mention one, um, I guess, uh, big application point, and then I'll, I'll close out the message, uh, okay? So in light of what's been said today, uh, I believe maybe there's something you can hash out during your CGs. As believers, okay, we ought to be thankful for God's provision for the church, knowing that God, he raises different kinds of workers, right, different kinds of people to do his work. Right? That's a good thing, not a bad thing. We should celebrate that. You know? Paul was this fiery character who had this incredible pioneering spirit. He was like an entrepreneur, right? I know some of you think that kind of character is annoying. Like you don't like the fiery sort of the, the men who are so direct and, and bold. and You don't like that. But he was that kind of figure. The church needed him. He had a purpose. On the other hand, Apollos was a more polished. He was more refined. Right? He was more gifted in a way than Paul when it came to speech. And God used him in a unique way. The church needed him. Then there was also Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple who lived a more simple life. Yeah? But they had the gift of hospitality. They were warm. They were able to open up their home and minister to the Apostle Paul. Probably for the whole two years he was in Corinth. And then to Apollos. Right? Open up a place of dialogue with him. And their faithful contribution was necessary as well for the church in order for it to be established and strengthened during that time. So they're all different. And some in the early church, however, did not know how to handle this kind of diversity, right? So they ended up creating these divisions. You know, I follow Apollos. He's my guy. I like the sophisticated, refined, you know, educated elite class type. No, 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 I follow Paul. I like the entrepreneurial guy, like the Elon Musks of the world, right? I like those kind of guys. They're more exciting for me. Some people say, no, 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 I follow Peter because he is the humble fisherman. He's the blue-collar type of guy that I, I can relate to, right? So these, these preferences kind of dictate who you follow. But Paul's response to this kind of division that he saw later in the church was, brothers, sisters, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? You know, what is Peter? Who are we? You know, we're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Amen? And this should be our perspective as well. See, we're all very different, but just like the different characters in our story today, we're part of the same church, we're part of the same team, and we must not divide the church over secondary matters such as our personalities or our giftedness 
education status, our pedigrees. No. You know, over the years, generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, it's been true that the unmarried had a tendency to be unnecessarily critical toward married couples. Okay? You know who you are. <laughs> Pastor David's still technically single, by the way, okay? He's got to get married first before claiming to be married, okay? <laughs> He's not there yet. And the married couples also had a tendency to be unnecessarily critical toward the unmarried, right? This is human nature in a way. This is our struggle. There's also been a tendency to divide the church based on what schools you graduated from. I won't get into that right now, okay? But you, you know what I mean. Also, where you grew up. Where'd you grow up? Oh, you're from Maryland. I can tell. I knew it. Right? Oh, you're from Nova. Oh, yeah, you're Nova. Yeah, I can. He's Nova, right? And I, I was shocked to learn that th there's even a division. Oh, you're from Nova, but she's from Sova. <laughs> what is, what's Sova? Right. Did I pronounce that right? Southern Virginia versus Northern Virginia. I guess there's a big difference. I guess there is a difference, but it never just, never dawned on me that people would have this sort of radar detecting <laughs> who's who. But there's this natural division created, you know, and I, I do believe that people who move here from another region or another state normally feel less welcome. And so, brothers and sisters, let me encourage all of us to go back to what we were doing much better. Like we, were, we were doing a whole lot better pre-COVID. We were really making, I felt like, an effort to connect with people that we've never met before during our fellowship hour. Okay? And I, I would say that let, let's do our best to go back to that this year. Okay? Make, make more of an effort. I know it's, it's hard to kind of break out of our, the habits we formed over the past two years, but let's commit to doing this together and be a healthier church. Instead of being critical of people's differences, let's be intentional about showing appreciation for how God has uniquely made us. Because once again, he raises up different kinds of workers in the church so that we could tackle different kinds of work. We can't all do the same thing. Some do this better and some do that better. Married couples, I'll conclude with just two, two remarks, one for the married couples, one for the singles, okay? Or maybe I should say unmarried. Just. Married couples, much of your time will be spent in cultivating a healthy marriage and raising godly children. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that, okay? But I, I do want you to be inspired by the example of Priscilla and Aquila today and, and consider carving out some time in your busy schedules to practice hospitality, okay, and to use the home that God has given to you to bless the Apollos's in our area with the warm meal and with some life-giving conversation. Remember that your marriage is meant to be a faithful reflection of the gospel, and many of our singles would greatly benefit from your life wisdom and your effort to model the gospel through your marriage. So please commit to doing that. And to the unmarried, 
Be grateful for this season of life where you're able to give your undivided attention and devotion to the Lord. That is one blessing of singlehood. Right? Singlehood is not meant to be this all doom and gloom. Oh, I'm so lonely, you know. And I understand the struggle. I understand. But there's also a blessed component to it. I was so thankful for those who volunteered to serve at the Lamb Center yesterday. Uh, I think, I mean, my, my count was 13, including the, the ones uh, Pastor Andrew listed. Um, but someone said 12. I'll go with 13, okay? There were 13 people who uh, volunteered. And I, I saw the picture, and I saw who else was missing in the picture, who was helping inside. But out of the 13 listed, guess how many were singles versus married? Okay. Three people were married. Okay. So there was a couple and then one husband that was, was present. Right. Uh, not a surprise at all whatsoever. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to put a guilt trip on any of you married people, okay? I'm simply pointing out that when you're single, okay, you are given much more freedom to serve. You are that much more flexible, okay? On short notice, you can just make yourself available, okay? And I am thankful for that, okay? I don't look at that picture and say, man, I wish there would be more married people. No, I'm not thinking of that. I'm thinking, this is, this is a great picture, I'm thankful for all of these members who serve. And, of course, there are more singles than married couples. Right? That's just a no-brainer. But married, married couples have their own responsibilities. Right? And so it's not as if only the singles are doing God's work. Right? We're all doing God's work, but in different ways. And if we understand that dynamic, right, that we're all members of the same body, essentially on the same team, we should all be able to give thanks and praise to God for using us in all of these different ways. Right? Did you notice, like, most of our worship team, I can say that more than half are married couples, right? <laughs> it's an accurate statement. <laughs> it was three, okay, it was three married couples, two singles. But still, okay, accurate statement, right? You, you know why that tends to be, though? Because singles... They have a hard time committing long-term to things, something, right? And so, you know, it, it takes, it takes this, this character that's willing to commit, not just for like three months, but long-term, right, to do a worship ministry. Right? That, that's why you kind of see this disparity. But, um, brothers, sisters, as the weather warms up later this week, and as the spring season approaches, I encourage all of you to be more intentional about engaging with one another, right? The way we used to do it pre-COVID. Right? I commit myself to faithfully doing my part. So I ask you to commit to faithfully doing your part. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you that you have always raised up different kinds of workers, like the husband and wife duo of Priscilla and Aquila and the gifted young talent that was Apollos to be sent out into the harvest. So it is our hope that you would bless us as a church so that each of us would also be sent out into the harvest in our respective stations in life to do the work of testifying of Christ and calling people to follow him. Lord, encourage our married couples to rededicate themselves to you and to each other. 
so that their marriages would serve as living testimonies of your gospel of grace. And regardless of who may be more articulate or gospel fluent in, in the marriage, may the husband always be committed to loving his wife and the wife always be committed to submitting to her husband so that you would be honored in our marriages. Also encourage our single men and women to remain teachable no matter how gifted or, or well-educated they may be so that godly character could be formed and Jesus honored throughout their lives. Ultimately, Lord, we trust not in ourselves but in the work that you have begin, begun in each of us with full confidence that you will bring it to completion according to your perfect timing. Give us grace this day to live unto you and for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'll stand together and give praise to God.